Hello, and welcome to the Wild Blue Podcast, perspectives on aviation lives, lifestyles, and business. Well, welcome to the Wild Blue Podcast, uh, where we talk about aviation lives, lifestyles, and business, and sometimes just whatever, uh, and you know, have a little fun bantering back and forth about general aviation and, and uh, sometimes professional aviation. That's kind of the direction we're going to go today. So I'm Chris Kirk. I'm here with uh, Todd Mitten. And uh, we're we're, uh, we're glad to be together doing these podcasts today. I uh, just want to mention that uh, if you haven't done so already, would you please take the time to subscribe and to to share our podcast with others? Um, this is not a money making endeavor for us. <laughs> we're not getting any money off of this, but it is it's just fun, and and uh, we've gotten some. Uh, we actually, we, we, we've had some feedback from some pretty interesting folks out there that are listening, and, and we just kind of like to know that. So uh, we hope it's beneficial to you, and moreover, it's just fun. So anyway, Todd, you want to take it and run with it? Well, Chris, great to be back, as always. We always have a good time with these, as you've mentioned. Uh, you know, our listeners may not realize that uh, Chris has recently become an international jet captain, as I like to refer to it. And this is the real deal. This isn't the uh, international light like I fly these days. It's No, but uh, you've been there. Oh, I know. But uh, but anyway, you're, uh, you're now uh, flying uh, an Airbus uh, A330 and across the North Atlantic and the Pacific for a major airline. And I thought uh, listeners might be interested in kind of learning about that aspect of flying it's not something that you often get a peek into the into that world behind the curtain i don't think i mean we you kind of can learn about airline flying a little bit on youtube and so on but but the international part is a little bit unique get to hear stories from people who do it on a uh, day-to-day basis so i thought i thought our listeners might might find this topic interesting so uh you've been uh flying the airbus six seven months now and you've got a number of north atlantic crossings uh, i i flew uh, as a first officer or triple seven the 767 for a number of years doing that kind of flying and so uh what do you think so far after six seven months of flying? I, I love it i absolutely love it i'm having a blast doing it i think um particularly across the the North Atlantic, I'm finding it to be a little busier than I anticipated sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the it, we stay pretty active watching a variety of things, which we'll touch on here. But man, I'm, I'm having a blast. It's, it's fun not only to go to those places, but uh, I like the three-man crew. You got three people up there, so there's, you know, a little bit of a different dynamic. And uh, you just told me you flew a trip the other day with, with two, with a female first officer and a and a female relief officer and you're calling it a three-man crew i don't think that's yeah <laughs> yes i'm old, i'm old school um but uh and and neither one of them would have taken offense at that either by the way yeah um but uh, yeah and that's that's a neat dynamic and i'll tell you where i get the most out of it i think a lot of people would probably agree they're in this role is you get to your destination everybody's kind of tired You've got three people up there, and I love having that third person kind of watching over from the big picture, bringing things to your attention yes. that you're not seeing, you know, yes. and that that is just hugely invaluable going into these destinations that you don't get into a lot. You get into them fairly frequently, but 
you know, they're, they're busy places. And that happened the other day going into London. And we were, you know, um, it was just a, a simple thing on an approach, you know, and I forgot to do something. Hey, make sure you activate this. Oh, yeah, you know, crap, you know. So, and, it, and everything worked out great, but it's just you're thankful to have that person there. Yeah, the extra set of eyes who paying attention is valuable. But before we land at London, let's back up. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's uh, start. What? Why? Why does international flying go more senior at an airline? You know, you always think of the senior pilots flying the wide body airplanes to the international destinations. Why is that? I think it boils down to schedule and pay. Really, more than anything, I don't think it has anything to do with the airplane. Um, but it's just the schedule that you get and, uh, you know, you're doing one leg a day cause yes. you're doing a, you know, an eight, 10, 12, sometimes maybe 14, 16 hour leg. Um, but you're doing, um, you're doing that. And, and then of course the pay. And so you, you have a little more control, I think over your schedule because you're not susceptible to being rerouted in the middle of your trip. Right. And, um, you know, the older you get, the less you want to put up with that. Um, no, I think you're right. I think that the the schedule is nice. And the flying, while a common question I have always, have always been asked is, how do you fly those long legs? I can't imagine 10 hours. Well, you alluded to it with, with a relief pilot, and, and we should probably discuss why we have a relief pilot, but with a relief pilot, you are... Uh, able to get a little rest in the middle yeah. of a, of well, a flight. touch on real quick when why, when is one required when well okay flights uh i i want to say over eight hours it's kind of under the old rules but in general flights that are more than eight hours are going to require a third pilot so and then over uh when, when, you know. over 12 that adds a, another uh, even another pilot so right. four so you would think People say, well, how could you fly all the way from the United States to uh, Narita, Tokyo, Japan, or, or somewhere, Hong Kong, whatever it may be? Wouldn't that just be so long? Well, when you, when there's four pilots to do a two-pilot job, it makes life easier in reality because you get a chance to rest, take a nap, just yeah. take your brain off of the flying for a few minutes. And so there are rest facilities on these airplanes. Our listeners may or may not know that most wide-body airplanes come with a, uh, a, a rest facility. In the case of the 777, depends on the model. There's two bunks that are right behind the cockpit on the 200. On the 300, they're up above the first-class uh, uh, cabin. This is for pilots. There's also mm-hmm. uh, flight tents have a rest facility at the aft part of the 777-300, again, up up above the aft part of the coach. What about on the on the Airbus? Yeah, it's uh, ours are downstairs, so they're mid cabin. Some of them are all the way back, but they're they're downstairs. And we've got two. It depends on the airplane. The the three hundreds are um, our original three hundreds are a shorter range airplane, so we've only got one bunk down there. Uh, but the we have some later model three hundreds, our two hundreds, and our new ones. The the nine hundreds have um, two bunks with a with a chair. So you yes, got, you got a chair you can either sit down in, and which occasionally, if I'm not tired, I'll do that. And I'll read a book or, or maybe even watch a movie or something, because uh, you're totally off duty there. You know, take your shirt off and relax a little bit. And, and but most of the time, um, you know, we've got bedding 
it's the same bedding that, that at least for us we use in first class right right nice yep so we've got a nice pillow a nice blanket nice and blanket go down there and i'll, I'll take a nap if i can yeah i'm i'm good at sleeping on an airplane it turns out <laughs> uh another aspect that i think makes it go more senior and people don't immediately think of this is you have a I jokingly say a cast of thousands to do a job that domestically you would not have that kind of help. First off, just thinking of the cockpit and, uh, you know, with the extra, uh, with the relief officer or sometimes two relief officers, you know, someone, that individual can go do the walk around and kind of get the airplane ready while the other pilots are, are planning. Now there is a little more flight planning goes on. We'll talk about that in a bit, but, but so you're dividing the duties in that regard. That's at right. least that was something I found. And the second thing, at least at at the airlines that I've flown uh, international for, the uh, the number, the lead flight attendant, which on the international side at Brand X we refer to as the purser. We do too. The, yep. the pursers are typically uh, typically a little more. Uh, how would I say it? I, you have to be careful. I don't want to. Well, they're more, they got more training. Yeah, they get more training, and they're and they're just they seem to care a little more. I don't want to. I don't want to disparage any. There's plenty of good flight attendants, but but they do seem to take their their role a little more seriously in terms yeah. of they they the, take care of a lot of the stuff that you as a captain would otherwise have to worry about customs related things and and right and dealing with passenger matters and they, they just do a really nice job. I think I have very high opinion of most persons. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. They, they, uh, they make it a little easier. You know, they're, they're the ones that are making sure you get fed, yes. you know, and, uh, and all that stuff. And that's well. a great point. Cause they do, they do take the time to worry about you getting fed as opposed to just, Oh yeah, I forgot about that <laughs> as, as you sometimes run into right. the domestic but they're busy up there. I mean, they oh, yes. are, you know, in that, in those international flying first class, if you've had the privilege of, of sitting up there, you see how much those people work. They are, they're, they're going at it all the time. And when you don't see them, generally they're back there in the galley prepping your prepping stuff. Prepping your stuff. That's exactly right. So they're, they, uh, they're working hard. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I, th- I think I look at them as kind of, you know, they're, they're, a, they're generally a notch above. I mean, they gotta they gotta be selected for that. They gotta pass all the stuff you know that the company puts on them, and and I know that um, uh, that not all of them make it through that program. And they take pride in their job. They really do. And so that is another aspect I think of why ultimately this kind of flying goes senior. Yeah. Uh, so let's. I, I briefly touched on. How how do you you let's say you get to the airport you're going to start your trip and uh, you're there an hour and a half prior whatever however long it is what do you what do you do when you meet the other pilots and what what happens so the uh, so when we're starting a trip uh, yeah we get there our, our sign in for an international is an hour and a half prior is that what you guys uh, no believe it or not still an hour oh uh, really and, but I would say the vast majority of, of pilots show up well ahead of that okay. one hour point at least hour 20 or something so yeah we look at uh, you know we'll sit down at we got briefing rooms for this we sit down and um we'll go through um you know i i just kind of go over anything that may be a little unusual you know we'll take a look at the weather and the ride um if there's something that's kind of kind of out there we'll give the dispatcher a call 
and get a conference call just to to get that person's opinion on stuff. And that, that's that's not real often. Some people like to right. do it every flight. I don't really see the need to do it, but but you know if there's if it's something weird, you know, you get some weather out in you know the middle of the tracks or something, you know, talk to them. Um, and then you know you're just you're just verifying, you know, just just general overhead questions. Hey, nobody forgot their passport. You know, you, <laughs> yes, you got all that kind of stuff going on. Uh, there's there's um, we look at the track message, which is uh, you know there there are um, tracks which are routes that go over both the Atlantic and the Pacific that are um, that are set day to day, and they're a series of lat long latitude longitude. Waypoints that connect together, and so like if you're, I think the other day we were coming back on track uniform, you're verifying that those waypoints are the same as what your flight plan is showing, and that you're looking at the the correct day because they do change by day and by altitude and and by direction. Right. Uh, so we're doing that, and then we like to. I, I generally like to, if I can, uh, finish all that up early enough, and I'll jump over to the flight attendant lounge, and you know introduce myself and just talk to them and just a couple little my little pet peeves we'll talk about you know and, and I just want to make sure I like putting my eyes on each one of them we have generally 10 that we fly with and so I like to see who's who and where they are at you know well right because in reality you may not see they're in the back of the airplane and you may not see them till you get on the bus at the destination yeah. isn't that correct so it's nice to see them in it and you know just for as much as anything else I want to I want to kind of peek at them and if we have to evacuate and get out of that airplane I kind of want to know who I'm looking for right you know, I'm not sure I really remember but at least I'll have some some memory of that right and uh, and I'll, I like taking care of the flight attendants I really do because they you know, most people are sitting back there, kind of taking them for granted, and they. Um, uh, in fact, I make a PA every time, and the flight attendants usually comment on it. And I don't do it for the comment, but I, I just like to make sure that people understand that. Hey, when you're back there, treat these people like you want to be treated at work, and uh, and that goes a long way in helping them have a good flight and, and everybody else. Right, right. There's too much going on in the industry today that. Yep. It needs it's just unfortunate anyway so so you finish playing go out to the airplane and now i think it it kind of operates like a normal flight at that point you download your route and and you it gets you get set up for the route is there anything special well you touched on it todd and and uh and i'd like to know if you guys do it any different but you know we it, all this starts with the dispatcher, right? So the right. dispatcher's putting together your flight plan and, and uh, all this stuff. And so you're also dealing a lot with, with maintenance because unlike a domestic airplane, um, you won't go out with very many deferrals, you know, no. maintenance, open maintenance items on an international flight. Uh, the more, more has to be working <laughs> on right. an international airplane right. than on a domestic airplane. That's because you get out over these areas where you might be two or three hours uh, or more away from a suitable alternate. Uh, you know, you, you want to have as much working for you as you can. Right. Part of the part of the flight planning, and we should get into this topic now. I think part of the planning done by the dispatcher is to look at alternates that are en route so mm -hmm. in other words unlike typically as if, if we have some general aviation pilots who are listening who fly ifr regularly they they recognize that sometimes they have to file an alternate airport okay that's at your destination 
what we're what we're going to refer to here are en route alternates and yeah. that's because if one engine quits these are all twin engine airplanes at this point and we have rules uh the acronym is etops etops extended twin engine overwater operations and i'm they, glad you knew that because i'm not sure i yeah. did <laughs> engines turn or people swim that's it <laughs> uh, no, there you go the uh the so the uh, what would be some typical alternate recent flights that you've flown to europe what are some of the re, uh en route alternates let's talk about so it's going to depend on how far north or south you're going you know if you're going really far north you're going to have uh probably like goose bay uh canada you're going to have reykjavik iceland um seems like shannon uh, ireland's always on there um a little further south you might have the azores you might have bermuda um but these are all those you know if we're doing an etops 180 if we're filed under etops 180 that's 180 minutes that we have to we have to be within 180 minutes of one engine operation to that suitable airport suitable airport so if if uh the forecast at that airport doesn't meet is not you couldn't get in the airport mm -hmm. at that time when you're going to go by it, then that's not a suitable alternate, and that presents planning challenges for right. the dispatcher. And the reality of it is you may not use that one anyway, but it has to be there for planning. For you planning know, if something purposes, happened, yeah. you may decide, I don't want to go there. I want to go somewhere else. Yeah, that's exactly right. The uh, This is – that starts to touch on the why the, the captain uh, – most time, life's going to be pretty easy. But that one time when, when yeah. things go uh, awry, you're going to have some decisions to make. And uh, I, you know, maybe it's because I'm still fairly new in this, but I, I, I spend a lot of time looking at weather at those places mm -hmm. and, you know, looking at how far we are from those places and, uh, you know, just kind of thinking about, all right, if we have to do this, what are we going to do? You know, where, where are we going to go? Cause, you know, sometimes like uh, in Iceland, the winds are so awful. Yeah. Um, you don't necessarily want to go up that way. The uh, As a whole aside, that was a, one of the best things about all the years in the C-130. All those airports that are they're just four-letter identifiers to m many pilots flying across the uh, North Atlantic. If you were a C-130 guy for a lot of years, you... Uh, you were there. <laughs> they were all places I've been. All Every, every one of those you mentioned a minute ago... Uh, you know, Goose Bay, Catholic Lodges, uh, Halifax, St. John's, uh, Shannon, uh, uh, Prestwick, yeah. all places I went into in the C-130. It was uh, many of them multiple times. So I always, I always enjoyed that, thinking about that because they were such fun places when you got to visit them. But so assuming uh, the, the flight goes along as planned what's what's it like uh taking off out of out of atlanta or minneapolis or dallas fort worth or wherever it may be initially uh it's i'll just say to me it's just pretty much like a domestic flight initially so not, we, not that those locations would have anything to do with brand x or yeah, brand y <laughs> uh, maybe we should say shoot i can't even say chicago denver <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so so say the question again. <laughs> Why? What? What? Initially, as you as you're on taking off and en route, 
it's uh, it's kind of like just flying a normal domestic flight. You're talking to right. to uh, Chicago Center or or whomever you're talking to. But beyond that, what happens? Well, it depends. It's you know it depends kind of the timing whether you're eastbound or westbound. So if you're taking off, you have frankly if you're taking off out of the U.S., you have a little bit more time, especially where we are, to to deal with stuff. But you're taking off out of Europe and headed back. You have to get you know you have to get your oceanic clearance, and uh, depending on which sector or which uh, controlling authority you're going through, determines on how much earlier, uh, prior to entering those those tracks that we mentioned, you can get that clearance. And so that's you know that's one of those things. Right. I think that I think that. So what I was thinking about was you know you end up talking to. Uh, Canadian air traffic control, uh, Moncton or Gander, prior to that Toronto, whomever. Uh, as you as you approach the tra- the ocean, and when so when Chris says the tracks, he's talking about the part of the flight that crosses the North Atlantic. And I'm kind of thinking about starting in the U.S. and flying to Europe. I okay. Obviously, it's kind of the opposite coming back. And we're not even talking about going to over the Pacific at this point, but when you're when you're uh, approaching those tracks, you you cannot fly out in the ocean without a clearance. You got to. It's a very controlled environment out mm-hmm. there. It's a non-radar environment. It's a very controlled. So they want separation between airplanes at the same altitude, or they need altitude separation. Right. So. Uh, you have to get a clearance. It may be what you filed, or it may not be what you filed. So how how do you how do you get that clearance though? I mean, you just talk to the same guy, or you talk to somebody different. Um, well, we send ours in through CPDLC. So the, the, the I can't even spell CPDLC. I, know, I heard a guy say it wrong the other day, and I was like, <laughs> okay, is that right? I was trying to figure it out. So CPDLC means what? Co- controller, uh, controller, pilot, uh, data link, communications. Communications. Yeah. So it's a, it's a it's a texting method essentially direct to the ATC centers or with a facility and you know there's a lot of pre-populated things that we can ask so it makes the, the communication easier but it's just a way to communicate so we, that's how we get our clearance we do it via right. CPDLC yeah. we put it in there we send it in and then we can do it as a backup over voice uh, which takes a little bit more time because it's you know, they got to read everything to you. But uh, that's how we get ours. Is that the way you guys were doing it? Oh, yeah, yeah. CPDLC came around in the, uh, I don't know, it probably goes back to the early 2000s. I'm, I'm guessing on that. Uh, mm-hmm. I got plenty of clearances via voice, both in the C-130 and then on the, the old days on the 767, you know, back at TWA in 2000, right. 2001 when I was flying international there. But uh, <clears throat> once the... Uh, once CPDLC came around, it got a lot easier. So that's how we typically are going to. You're going to get a clearance. It may be what you filed. The company wants you on track uh, Bravo. What it may not be. You may be right. on track Charlie or something. And you that's may. where it gets a little more busy because now yes. you've got to work with dispatch, getting the new clearance, and you know, and all that, and, and getting a new, uh, not a new clearance, but a new flight plan rather. Yes. So see if your fuel burn is going to work out. And, and those, those initial oceanic crossing uh, clearances will have a, a set Mach number, so you can't vary from that. So, you know, usually we're flying 8-2, somewhere in there, so it'll be 0.82 uh, at whatever flight level. 
and then they're expecting you to hit that first point within what's the tolerance, Todd? Two minutes? Three, three, three minutes. minutes. So uh, you know you got to be fairly close and accurate on that. And oftentimes you won't be at that Mach number or at that altitude when you get the clearance. But when you hit that, we call it coasting out. When you hear that, mm-hmm. when you get that clearance to that first point, you've got to be there. So now you mentioned it's busy, somewhat. It's surprisingly busier in the cockpit than than people might think. Uh, yeah. You may just picture people just sitting around waiting until you till you're ready for the descent into London or wherever. No, it's actually it's actually a it's a, there's a rhythm to it, wouldn't you say? Yes. So what what yeah. are, what are you guys doing so in like, that as you as you hit these non-radar oceanic points? So you hit these oceanic points, it's going to determine um, you know who you're talking to, again what sector, but via what means. So um, most of the time, what you're going to do is, you know, we, we've essentially got two, if not three, ways to communicate with the controllers. We've got uh, VHF, if we still have it. So Iceland, if we're in the airspace, we're almost always on VHF. We've got HF uh, as a backup. Uh, as part of HF, we've got... Um, HF meaning high frequency. High frequency, right. Um, and then we've got... Um, What's the third I'm thinking of CPDLC. here? CPDLC. CPDLC, right. And so what will happen is the controller will give you a, a high frequency and then a backup high frequency to monitor. And then um, you'll, you'll monitor them and you'll check in with them. Um, and then while you're doing that as well, once you enter the tracks, you're going to uh, potentially offset from the, the track itself. So we're, we may not be flying exactly on the track. We can offset up to two miles to the right. And, and generally we're kind of looking at who's in front of us or who's behind yeah, us. Why, would, the you, why would you offset? I mean, don't you always want to fly the, the black line? So yeah. To speak? Well, you know, there's a lot of airplanes out there. Yes. And uh, you'll see if, if you, you know, take time away from your movie and, and open your blind up <laughs> and you look out there when you're over the North Atlantic, you're likely to see other airplanes. Some of them passing each other up, you know, uh, it is opposite crazy. direction. Right. And some of them, you know, like the other day, it's not uncommon. Uh, we had one passing us. In fact, it was one of you guys' triples going underneath us, a thousand feet below us, and setting off our radar altimeter. You yeah, know? that's just, pretty cool. Right under, yep. Yeah, and that was that was fun to watch. So there's there's a lot of that, but you know, you're you're going to offset um, for several reasons. I like looking at it initially. Okay, what are the winds? And what what's the potential we're going to get into this guy's wake or That's the guy the behind issue, us? Right, the wake turbulence. And the other is if if something happens, one of the things that you, we have to do on a um, you know if you have a, a contingency or an emergency, you're going to even deviate a little further to the right of those tracks before you can start descending. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people like to deviate or not deviate, but to offset that full two miles because it puts them closer to that five mile point. If they have to descend, and the reason that why would you have to descend? What well, is, you got an emergency. You've got something yeah, going on. You've got a cabin pressurization. Cabin You've pressure, lost an engine, engine. Um, and now you're going to have to start diverting. You just can't on those tracks start turning uh, willy nilly to wherever you're going because of all the traffic that's out there. Right, because the tracks now they were just when we talk about these tracks pre-designated each day uh, by people who do this for a living in gander uh, canada uh they the tracks historically were 60 miles apart and we talk about alpha bravo charlie so 
Alpha's furthest north, then Bravo, 60 miles south. Charlie is 60 miles further south. Well, now they've, they've gone to half track, so now mm-hmm. they're only 30 miles apart. And again, it is non-radar. ADSB. I know you can if you're if you're on Flight Aware or or uh, Flight Radar Twenty Four, you can look and see airplanes out there. That's all, I guess. Satellite ADSB. I'm not even sure how those are picked up now, but that's not really and directly an air traffic control function. It's right. still still done considered like non-radar. So it is important. That you are where you say you are, yeah. And when you'll be there, you're and at. when you'll be there, yes. So and so now, not only are you listening to, you've got, um, you know, you've got your high frequency radio, you've got maybe a VHF, but you you have typically your number one com tuned on a VHF to to one two three four five, and one two three four five is kind of the common frequency. So you'll hear chatter back and forth about. But it's just between airplanes, chatter between airplanes about weather, about what's their ride, you know, any other number of things. And then you're also monitoring 21.5 for emergency freaks. So you've got a lot of frequencies that you're you're sitting there and, and potentially listening to. Right. And the HF frequencies vary depending on atmospheric conditions. Thankfully, so, so it might be if the sun's up higher, typically it's a higher number. It might be uh one one gosh i'm spacing off some of the typical i i heard these things for years yeah uh one one two nine uh two seven five one, maybe one, or yeah one one anyway and they get at night and they tend to be lower like six like a four digit one mm-hmm. six point something 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 and uh thankfully we don't there's a lot of static on an hf radio so thankfully you don't have to listen to those all the time because how how will the controller if they want to contact you, how are they going to contact? Because you're not listening to any controllers as you fly along. Right. Remember, we're using that CPDLC. So they may contact you via that. But if that doesn't work, how else do they so contact with the, you? So one of the reasons you're checking in with them on high frequency, not only for voice backup, but it's what we call cell call. Right. So cell call, each airplane has a specific identifier. It's a four-letter four letter, um, identifier. So your, your cell call code might be, Alpha, Charlie, Delta, Quebec, or something like that. And so once you check in, the controller knows that. It's specific to that airplane. They will kind of ping you. They'll send a, a message which causes your um, your unit in the airplane to, to, I don't want to say alarm, but to notify you. It sends a, a notification. Effectively, it dings. It's, yeah. it's selective calling is what cell call is short for. As soon as that cell call ding comes in, uh, you, you verify it with them, a couple other little things, and then you turn your radios down because, like Todd said, there's a lot of static. And that's, to me, I don't know about you, but that's very fatiguing to listen to. <laughs> it's, well, it's awful. Uh, I did probably 100 Atlantic crossings in the C-130, and the entire time wearing David Clark headsets and listening to the whole time. Oh, the, my gosh. Because uh, we had we did not have cell, have call cell call in the C-130, so... Uh, you just had to sit there and listen to it, keep it turned down. And, and you course, guys didn't have CPDLC on, this, on the oh, 130 no, no. either. Yeah. No. And, of course, a lot of this stuff was, I, a lot of that flying, I was doing it in the 90s even, and so it wasn't, they didn't even have it yet. Nobody right. Nobody had it. And, and the frequencies got so busy, it was almost impossible. There were times you just couldn't get a word in. Just crazy how busy yeah. the frequencies were got to be and they'd be even worse today because there's so many airplanes 
Again, I referenced uh, Flight Radar 24 or Flight Aware. If you go look at a typical, pick at any time, just look at all the airplanes crossing the yeah. Atlantic at one moment, it's, it's shocking how many airplanes are out there. And in general, the majority of eastbound flights depart late in the afternoon or or early or into the evening so they'll you'll see all these flights eastbound at that time meanwhile all the westbound flights tend to depart in the morning from europe uh coming back throughout the day daytime flying Okay, so Todd's talking about coming back from Europe on daytime flying. If you didn't hear it in the past, uh, just a little bit ago, we had the the uh, the wonders of, of doing a podcast at home uh, today and with the dog barking in the background. So <laughs> anyway, we took care of that. When, and, when were you going to build a professional studio for I know. us? <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, you're talking about coming back during the day with the, the well, daytime I just flying. Think- you, I was saying, talking about on flight aware, you can look and see all the airplanes eastbound at night and westbound during the day. And this has been doing, yeah, doing it this way forever. I'm sure many of our listeners have traveled to Europe at some point. Recognize that you get to Europe typically in the morning, and then coming back because of the time change, you're actually maybe you're leaving at 11 in the morning and you're getting back at two in the afternoon (laughs) into the United States. It kind of works out nicely. Uh, So, I mean, those are some of the operational aspects. It'd be hard to cover every airport in Europe, you know, how they do things differently just because it, it would take us too long. But let's talk maybe for a little bit about kind of the fun uh, of, when when you get there, what what are you thinking about? What do you well eh, even flying in? What are we what are you looking for? What what's been unique in your experience in terms of uh, just the, the, the procedures going? Yeah, in? differences. Well, and... obviously the language. You know, language is always a, a challenge, and that's what's nice having three people up there. So somebody can say, "What did he say?" Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, what was that? Sometimes I think, frankly, the Brits are the hardest to understand. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why, but you know, I can pick up. I can, you know, the, the Dutch controllers, I can generally they're pretty see, good. See yeah, figure it out. The French, I can figure them out. Uh, but the Brits are sometimes it's like he's speaking English. I didn't understand a bit of that. I found the I, the French to be the hardest. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It just depends. You get used to it, though. You do develop an ear over the course of of time. You start to be able to pick it up. Yeah. There's just different procedures, you know, going in there, like uh, especially in London where they're really big on the constant descent angles. You know, they want you to not have the power up very much, and so they, uh-huh. they're expecting you to fly constantly down and not level off. Um, you know, you got a lot of that stuff. You got uh, most European places anymore, they want you to fly 160 knots until you're four miles out. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and they're. They track that pretty closely. I know we've got competitions among the fleets to see who's the most compliant right. on that. You know, the the other thing about London that I've always found interesting is the you're going to hold going into London almost always, uh, but it's it's by design. Mm-hmm. It's just the way they meter the traffic in, and it it's really a pretty nice system when you get right down to it. It works pretty well. You just get in this big holding pattern and you might be in it for 
20 minutes, you might be in one turn. You know, it's, it can go very quickly or well, take a while. You know, he throws, I think it's still the busiest European airport, isn't it? And I they've only got so. two runways. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and, you, and you do got to apply the speeds, as you referenced, 160 to a four-mile final. And you, you'll fly with guys that want to cheat for some reason. It's not necessary to slow down early or anything like that. It just... Just follow the procedures. It works out real nice. Yeah. Well, and your airplanes tattle on you anymore anyway. So mm-hmm. as soon as we change anything, they know. Right. So, you know, and it gets reported. So Right. Um, it, but, you know, the point is, is they want you to, it, it helps them meter that traffic. They've got to get a certain number of airplanes in and out of there. And when you don't follow that, it kind of trickles down the line. And, and now all of a sudden, you know, the 10th guy down the line, he's holding when maybe he didn't have to or he's holding right. for a little bit longer. Right. And then... Once you land, uh, it, you're going to have to clear customs, uh, just like just like the passengers. Uh, what uh, what are some other unique things about? Well, you know, I, I I still I'm pretty convinced that if they drop me off at the gate and between getting to the gate and getting to the bus, if I was all by myself, I'm not sure I could still figure yeah, out how to get there. Some of them are hard. <laughs> some of these airports. Man, they're just, I'm glad there's other people there. There's they're, always somebody that's done it before. Yeah. Yes. Convoluted. Convoluted. And, uh, you know, thankfully, in, in London's easy because they, they pick us right up by the airplane. We just go down on a bus right yes. there. Uh, I notice you guys do that, too. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's that's not, you know, that's not the case in Paris or Amsterdam, Amsterdam. Frankfurt. Yep. Uh, So once (laughs) when you get to the hotel, so now I'm flying uh, a narrow body airplane to get around the U.S. and and a little bit of international, but not Mm -hmm. over the Atlantic. Uh, I fly with first officers that are uh, thinking about bidding the wide body, or should they upgrade? To domestic captain and and I always encourage them to bid international because I think first off you're going to get some experience that will help you down the road later when you're going to be an international mm-hmm. captain any it just you, it's better to have the experience as a first officer but the other thing I always bring up is the two most important things I always felt on an, on an international flight particularly to Europe and I this is the way I describe it to first officers I say you get to the hotel, you're going to meet, I mean, you're going to uh, get your room. It's another thing, pursers, typically, they, they handle all that, mm-hmm. takes that load off of the pilots. You just, they're, they're getting the room set up and all that. And then, and then once once you get to your hotel room, I say that the, the second most important thing you're going to do the entire trip is set an alarm for about three hours after you uh, have got to your hotel room. See. Get, you know, it takes maybe 30 minutes to get, right. but you're exhausted. You want to go to sleep. So you're going to go to sleep. You're going to sleep for two and a half. I don't know what, what how long you usually sleep. Well, that's just it. That's, and that's about right. If it's, two. if it's about three hours, so I go much more. I think last time I did four and it worked that's out pretty good, but that was pushing it. It was right. pushing it. it we depends. got in really early. Okay. It depends on the layover. Yeah. Yep. And the time you get there and all that. But so the, the second most important thing you're going to do in your entire trip is set an alarm. The most important thing you're going to do on the entire trip is get yourself out of bed (laughs) when the alarm goes off. Because there's been many a time when I've thought to myself, there is no way that I can do this right now. I cannot. I only slept for two, two and a half hours, whatever it was. All I want to do is sleep. But if you don't sleep, 
I mean, if you do sleep, you do sleep. if you do sleep, you stay in bed, then you're not going to sleep that night. That's period. the challenge, you right? You will there. not sleep that night. So, and sometimes it's um, sometimes it's based on what you've you've been out eating or how late you were, or it's sometimes it's just your body. You know, last the last trip, I think I slept five hours the, before report. You know, I woke up and I laid there and rolled, tossed, turned. Finally, I turn a movie on yes yeah sometimes <laughs> uh, you just give in you're better off to give in yeah you might but if you sleep five hours that's a pretty good night it's not bad that's it's not, not bad. bad and then and then again on the way back you're going to get your break like we've talked about having a relief officer so you're going to get a couple hour nap and yeah. route which but helps a bunch. get out of the room you know that's the thing so like sometimes if you have a later departure maybe it's an 11 or 12 o'clock departure I'll try to stay up until maybe one o'clock local time, or later. That's one a.m. So you know it might be my body time still might only be six or seven p.m. I guess we shouldn't assume this, but but people may not realize because people may not realize most of these layovers certainly not all of them. There's definitely exceptions, but the majority of international layovers are in the twenty-four hour range. Yep, might be twenty-five or twenty-six hours, might be a little shorter. Occasionally, we have some weird flights that are uh, a much shorter layover. But just the way the the way the time change works, and the eastbound in the evenings and westbounds in the morning works, is that you're gonna you're gonna have a 24 hour layover. So in that 24 hours, you're gonna take that nap. You're gonna have a night's sleep, and the rest of the time's gonna be your time to go out and and wander around, get some exercise, tour a museum, have a nice dinner, whatever you do. Yeah. And there's there's tons to do, that's for sure. There's tons to do, but mitigating the 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 effects of too much sleep, like you're touching on, is is one of the most important things. Exactly. I think, and, and getting out of that room and walking, and you know, and, and there's I tell you anymore, there's some really cool apps. I've been sharing these with people. Uh, there's two apps that I've got. One's called Traces of War, and it wherever you are, it will show you a map, uh, and you can also put a list out of where the um, any number of things it could be a an actual a battle site it could be just a um, a grave it could be just a, a historical marker you know uh, might be a statue or something like that sure and so I try to go find some of those I went the other day in London and found a church that had had been largely destroyed and they rebuilt it after a bomb hit across the street a German bomb and I thought that was kind of so I walked for quite a while to go find that that's interesting I wish I'd have known about that when I was still flying that stuff yeah. because and then the other one I found the other day and this was uh, actually a guy that I went through Wade that I went through training with he was showing me this um, and it's called uh, oh it's, it, what it does is it gives you a um, uh Voice map. There we go. Voice map. And what voice map does is it's, it gives you audio tours that are geo-referenced. So oh. you can go see things and listen, you know, put your, your uh, earbuds in or whatever, and and you'll get a tour from a local historian that's narrating oh, wow. it. And one of the neater things about it is if you're like, you know, you're in France and you're standing in front of this thing and it's French and you can't read it, well, <clears throat> that app, they're translating it in English to you so that's you can fantastic. see it. and that's not free it's free to download each one is like seven bucks if you want to go on a tour and the tours last I think from a half hour I've seen them up to an hour and a half okay uh, so that's something that's kind of cool too so that there's is. just tons to do yeah that's fantastic but, I, 
Well, Todd, I think it's, we're getting close to that 45-minute mark and probably time we start wrapping this up. There's so much more that we could talk about. You know, one thing we didn't touch on was uh, uh, international fuel requirements and how designating alternates is so much different. Um, you know, we didn't talk about some of the uh, the passenger issues that we face on these eight, you know, plus hour flights because it's pretty common that something's going on in the back, mm-hmm. medical wise. There's just a lot of that, so maybe we can do that at a different yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. We medical diverts. We never got into the concept of the Pacific flying because it is different than Atlantic flying. Yeah, uh, there's just there's a lot of topics it's it's a great lifestyle i miss it a lot i am hoping to get back to doing that kind of flying down the road for sure it's just what i i enjoy yeah sounds like you do too i do it's it is fun and and uh anyway if you have any questions or uh you know want to just talk airplanes with us want to talk about airplane sales or acquisitions that's what we do um you can email us, Chris or Todd, at flywildblue.com. That's our website as well, flywildblue.com. Our phone number is 888-773-4249. And uh, you know, we really, really appreciate you listening. Make sure you tell other people about it if you would. And uh, if you haven't already subscribed on your, your uh, preferred pod, podcast platform, please be sure to do that. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Wild Blue Podcast. Find us online at flywildblue.com. And don't forget to subscribe and share.